All right, in just a few moments, I'm going to read for us from 1 Samuel chapter 28, follow along, Bible's bulletins, as is best for you. But I do need to explain just for a second and try and stay with me here just for a moment why we are in 1 Samuel 28 this morning uh, and, and after the fact that we were in chapter 25 last week. Well, first of all, I'm not preaching on chapter 26. As I have noted before, chapter 26 is a very parallel incident wherein uh, David spares Saul's life to what we saw in chapter 24, and I kind of covered the substance of 26 uh, now, now a month or two ago when we were back at chapter 24 and even referred again to it uh, last week. From 27 onward to the end of 1 Samuel, we really now have a story that goes back and forth between David and Saul as we enter into the final phase of what we can describe as David's rise and Saul's fall. And, and this history in these chapters, uh, again from 27 to 31, the history goes uh, back and forth and it's told with these kind of interruptions that serve for us, and I say interruptions, it's really just going back and forth between Saul and David. It allows us to heighten the contrast uh, of what is taking place and then, and then kind of compare and contrast between the two. It makes for really good reading when you're doing that because it kind of heightens the tension and you enjoy reading and going back and forth. It's a little bit more challenging to preach though in that way. And so what I've decided to do is I'm going to let us look at Saul this morning in chapter 28. We were looking at David last week. Uh, and then I'm going to take us uh, next week, we'll kind of look at 27 and 29 and look at David in those passages. So in all that, if you're still with me, we are looking at chapter 28 uh, this morning and the story of Saul and the context, as you'll see as I begin to read it, is that the old enemy of the Philistines is once again uh, up against the people of Israel ready to fight against the people of Israel. The question is, what's Saul going to do in the midst of that? So let me read this now portion of the word. Now Samuel had died. And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know that Saul, what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. 
When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length, on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go your way. He refused and said, I will not eat, but his servants together with the woman urged him, and he listened to their words, so he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it, and she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate, then they rose and went away that night. Desperation, or uh, another title I wanted to give this sermon, Better to Let Sleeping Prophets Lie. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us today. Uh, we've got before us uh, one of those texts that is a little bit hard for us. It's a little bit complicated for us, especially with our modern minds and ears as we approach this one today. And we pray that you would help us to seek after you, to understand you, and to understand in particular what your will is for us that comes out of a text like this. We pray this, Jesus, in your name, confident in your spirit, guiding us through the word. Amen. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood. So wrote Dickens in the first few sentences, I've cut and pasted a little bit there, the first few paragraphs, to prepare us for a Christmas carol, 
and so emphasizes the writer of 1 Samuel. Because if you recall, just last week, in the way that we happen to have structured these, looking at chapter 25 this week, 28 this week, 25 and 28 begin with this same affirmation. Now Samuel died and they buried him. Samuel was dead. There can be no doubt about it, and it must be distinctly understood. It needed to be understood by both the very first readers of this book, and it must be understood by us moderns as we look at this ancient text before us today. Uh, we understand, I trust, and I hope you understand, that what took place here was by no means the norm. It wasn't the norm then, and it isn't certainly the norm now either. Both the ancient world and we, the modern world, understand that charlatans abound in a world like this. There are always, have been, and there always will be those who seek to profit by peddling claimed connections with the spirit world to give guidance to people who are in this world. There always have been charlatans. But perhaps there is a difference between us as moderns and uh, the ancient world. Perhaps we understand more of the complexity and the vastness of the material of the physical universe in which we live. We, we can't conceive of it but we can hear of the great distances that are between us and other planets, and other stars, and other galaxies uh, as well. But perhaps the ancients understood better than we the vastness and the complexities of the spiritual universe in a way that we've kind of put aside as ancient. Well, you know, our, our, our science fiction books and our science fiction movies try to deal with the distances uh, that exist in the material universe. And, and somehow for the stories to work, you've got to overcome time and space distances. And so you do that through things like warp drive or transwarp drive or hyperdrive or light speed or folding space or parallel universes and parallel time and place so that you can get to these various places and interact with them. But but there's another genre of sci-fi that wants the distances to be what they actually are and forces us to see how much time it would actually take to get us from here. And, and you can even think about this with Elon Musk and others right now who are trying to figure out how to get to Mars, how much time it actually takes to get there. And that genre, if you will, of sci-fi kind of allows you to experience the distance and the hardness of that distance. Our chapter here opens a, a window, a little, a little crack in the window to see the vastness of the spiritual universe. If you have read uh, the Space Trilogy of C.S. Lewis, you know that Lewis tries to do both of these things at the same time. He tries to capture a little bit of the vastness of the physical universe, the material universe in which we live, while at the same time showing the vastness of the spiritual world as well. And so, as we open up this text today, 
I know there are questions for us, and there are questions, frankly, that we're not going to be able to answer. But we should at least be humble as we open it. There's a vastness to the spiritual universe of cherubim, of seraphim, of myriads upon myriads of angels, and we believe in life after death. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so let it crack it open just a little bit for us, and what we find is that whether we're talking about the physical universe or the spiritual universe, it actually becomes surprisingly personal when you allow that to take place. All right, that's just the introduction because I know questions abound in our minds immediately as we look at this text. Now, let's consider the, the substance of the text as it is before us. Samuel was dead. Saul was in a jam. Saul was in, as he perceived them to be, dire straits. It was the same old enemy, but perhaps the Philistines this time, with their sophisticated weaponry, were there in greater force, in greater numbers than they had been before, and as a result, Saul was terrified. His courage failed him at that moment. Now let me just pause here for a moment and comment on this for just a moment. Saul was afraid of the wrong thing. He was short-sighted. He was near-sighted. He thought that these Philistines in front of me, they're the problem. They are the thing that I'm actually fearing, the Philistines who are right here. Philistines everywhere you look. He was right. There was a problem, and the problem was a big problem, but he was wrong. It wasn't the Philistines who were the actual problem here. The text, as it goes on, tells us that Saul inquired of the Lord. And on the face of it, when we hear that someone inquired of the Lord, we think, well, that's good. Praise God. I'm glad you took the time to inquire of the Lord, but be careful. Be careful here. Remember who this is. What he does isn't always what it seems to be. This is a man who has a habit of not listening to the Lord of taking his decisions and his matters into his own hand and doing what seems best to him. He is a man who has a habit of acting presumptuously. And this is the man who killed all of the priests at Nob. You want to know why? There's no ephod, there's no urim or thummim for him to, to consult. <laughs> it's because he killed them all. And the one that was left took the ephod with the urim and the thummim and now is with David. It's his own fault. There's a reason that God is not responding here. And the reason isn't the Philistines. The reason is Saul. He's not seeking the Lord. Saul is not seeking after God. Saul is simply looking for an escape route. How do I get out of this mess? How do I get out of this jam? What am I supposed to do in this particular battle? Can you give me some kind of a battle plan, a battle strategy? But at this point, it's too little, it's too hollow, and it's too late for any of that. Saul has been cut off. The kingdom 
is torn from him. The Lord has torn it from him. The Lord does not listen to him. The Lord has rejected him. That's the problem. Not the Philistines. That's the problem. When God is rejected and God is not listening, you have a serious problem on your hands. But the Lord has turned from him, and now Saul is desperate. And perhaps in this moment of desperation, an exceptionally dangerous phrase pops into his mind. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Maybe that goes into his head. In any case, Saul will resort to forbidden pathways to the spiritual world to help him with his problem in the material world. And so he moves in a way that he knows is wrong. He had, in fact, as we read in the text, put the mediums and the necromancers, and we don't need to parse between all of these particular things that are listed here. Basically, those who have the ability to consult with or connect with the spirit of the dead, he had put them out of the land. And it's emphasized here, even, even before he goes to them, we're told he did that. And that's good, right? That's good, and it's according to the law of the Lord that you don't consult with them, that as the king you put these kind of people out of the land. This was good. It was in accordance with the law. But in desperation, he goes against the law because, after all, his life is on the line. It's a desperate situation. And Israel is on the line as well. And so he goes to this woman. And he goes under the cover of darkness. He leaves when it is still dark. And he goes in disguise. If we can connect this with the book as a whole, he has divested himself of his royal vestiture. Once again, he has taken off the clothing of the king, put on clothing that he thinks will hide him from the Philistines, from the woman and, and knowledge, from the Lord himself. And he arrives to this medium at Endor. And unsurprisingly, because after all, she's a medium, she smells a trap. Right? She kind, of, she kind of sniffs out what's going on here. Nothing is right about this particular situ situation. But Saul presses forward. He presses on the point in the name of religion. And you can see, if you look at the text, the false religiosity that is here. The reasoning, the justifications. In, in verse 10, he says, I, 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 as the Lord lives no punishment will come upon you. Wait, Saul, you who put the necromancers and the mediums out of the land, you're the one who's now swearing as the Lord lives? As the Lord lives, you're declaring the Lord won't punish this type of behavior, but he drapes it with religiosity. And, and he might have reasoned, listen, I'm not asking you to consult some kind of a demon for me, some kind of a dark power. I'm asking for Samuel. I want to get direction from Samuel. You know, there's a lot of people you can ask for, but when you're asking for Samuel, you're asking for the guy who is, of course, a man of God. And it's for the sake of the kingdom of Israel. We're talking about 
saving lives here. Why quibble over how to do that? Why quibble over the means? I just need a word from the Lord. It sounds so noble, right? The cause sounds like a just cause. But if you were to look back at the words of Saul in each of the instances where he does stuff like this, Saul can always make himself sound noble. He can always make it sound like he is the one who is doing that which is good for the people and in the name of the Lord. But Samuel is not fooled. When the robed prophet appears, the jig is up. God is not fooled. The judgment of God will fall, and it will fall not only upon Saul, but it will fall upon his sons as well, and it will fall upon Israel. The fate and the fateful fall of Saul is sealed, and it's merely ours away. And it's represented in physicality. Verse 20, then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. He had been terrified when we started this chapter. He's even more terrified now because of what Samuel has said to him. And then as our text wraps up, a sort of last supper is prepared, a meal fit for a king, but it's not a good one. There's nothing redemptive about this last supper. Instead, it's more uh, of a symbolic last futile effort, last clinging on to the things of this world. And it reminds us of last week, Nabal, who threw a feast fit for a king, and right after that feast met his end. It reminds us of Belshazzar, who was having a feast when the words were written on the wall. Or it reminds us of Haman, who was enjoying himself as a feast as well, as well when God said, no, the jig is up. So that's the story that is before us today. And if you want one verse to summarize it, it comes from the call to worship from, San, from Hannah's song. It's this, verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. This is the wicked, Saul, being cut off in darkness. All right, that's the text. So, what do we do with this? What would God have us do with this text today? How do we apply this portion of the Word of God? Well, let me say the, the most obvious thing, the most immediate thing at first, that, that we should obey the Word of God as it prohibits the practices that are seen in this text. Okay, we should not engage in or seek guidance through necromancy or through mediums or through Ouija boards or fortune tellers or palm readers or seances or horoscopes or anything else. We should not practice those things. While some or, or even most of those things may be just elaborate hoaxes that are designed to profit off of people who are desperate, people who are lonely, and people who are confused, 
the Bible actually doesn't declare categorically that those things are ineffective. It actually doesn't say that. What it says is that regardless of any efficacy of these means of contacting the spiritual world, they are to you, the people of God, forbidden. You should not engage in them. So, there you go. If that needs to be said, if any of you are tempted to engage in those kinds of practices in times of crisis or moments of desperation, then we've said it. Such practices are wrong. They will be judged. They are a transgression of the law of God. But we need to go deeper when we look at this text and we talk about the meaning for our lives. Those sins that I just listed, those are, those are kind of the low-hanging fruit. If, if I stop there, you could go home feeling good about yourself. You know, well, I don't do those things, so I feel good about myself, and I'm glad to know that I shouldn't do them and should listen to the Word of God. But they're the low-hanging fruit, and they are symptomatic of serious and significant and deeper problems. Listen to these words that come from Samuel to Saul after one of his episodes of sin. When, when Samuel is speaking to Saul, he says to him, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. And divination is what we're seeing in our chapter here. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Rebellion and presumption, those are much more subtle than divination and idolatry. You might feel good. Most of Israel might have felt good, hard to say, that, no, I don't practice divination. I don't go to necromancers. I, I don't consult mediums. I don't really practice idolatry, except that God says, no, 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 these other sins, acting presumptuously, that's idolatry. And, and this rebelliousness that you see in your heart with respect to the Word of God, that's divination. You're seeking after a different God to rule your life than me and my Word. The, the deeper problem here is not listening to the Word of God through the means that are appointed by God. And when that happens, when that happens, Deuteronomy chapter 18, the, the passage we read earlier, we start hearing the false prophets, listening to the false prophets, and when we're not used to listening to the Word of God, the words of the false prophets begin to sound true to us. And we listen to them a little bit more and a little bit more. Or, or in 1 Samuel, the other danger of not listening to the Word of God is you take matters and you take decisions into your own hands. We act presumptuously. Our horizon becomes the immediate. Whether the thing that is right in front of us are the Philistines or a country in the midst of a political crisis, coronavirus, or racial tensions, or if we go back to a chapter last week, if Nabal is the thing that is right in front of us, or joblessness, or an upcoming exam, when, when 
when we are not in the habit of listening to the word of the Lord, those things can become the thing that we are seeing, the thing that takes up the horizon of our vision and we react to them. We fear those things. We look at the situation, we go, you know what, I'm in a bind right now and I need an answer right now. And then we can use wrong means or listen to wrong voices and sprinkle it with religious jargon and say that, well, in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord, we're doing this or we're doing that. Saul is desperate. And it seems to him, it seems to Saul, that the world is going to hell in a Philistine chariot. It's not, mind you. The world is actually not going to hell at this moment. This is going to be a bad day for Israel the next day. But the world is not going to hell because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he brings up and he, raise, he brings down and he raises up. But it feels that way to Saul. It's all that he can see. He's desperate. And in his desperation, he believes a lie. He says to himself, well, this is a good idea. I, I need information. And this little violation of the word of God is the best way to get it. It is a small thing, listening to a necromancer to get to Samuel, compared to the big thing, saving Israel and preserving the kingship. So this is okay. He believes a lie. And then he acts foolishly. He goes to the medium of Endor. He tells her, instructs her to bring up Samuel. And I would say at the end, he feasts when he should have fasted or kept up the fast. We must beware of what we believe and how we respond in times of crisis, in times of desperation in our lives. In such times, our thinking can become cloudy and proportionality can get lost. The thing that is right in front of us can seem like the immovable mountain. The thing on which the world makes or breaks the world, this thing right here. Tempers can flare, positions can become calcified and draped with religiosity, and those things can be defended as if the kingdom of God depended on them. As if everything is at stake in this particular moment of my life. And we can resort in such moments to a belief that the world is actually in our hands and we've got to do something about it. I don't want to over apply this text today and I want to be careful here, but I can't help but thinking about that with respect to our nation right now and the response of many so-called Christians or many who take the name of Christians upon themselves to what is taking place right now. I'm concerned for that. I'm more concerned for us, for us, the church. Because, listen, just in case this needs to be said again, the United States of America is not the Israel of God. We are not the Israel of God. The church is. The church 
is the people of God. And God governs what we do as a church and what we don't do as a church. Individually and as a church, we need to be prepared in times of desperation. In the first place, we have to habituate ourselves to listening to the voice of the eternal prophet who was and is and is to come. He speaks through his word, which we understand by his spirit. Jesus is that prophet. Many then and now, and Jesus warned of exactly this, many go out into the world and speak to the church, speak to the people of God, claiming some kind of special word from God. I've had a special dream. I've had a particular revelation from the Spirit. Or they go about misinterpreting the word and they drape it over top of their calls and say, this is the word of the Lord for you, for the church. Do not listen to them. Do not listen to them. We must steep ourselves in the sovereign rule and providential care and oversight of God Almighty. If we don't do that, then we feel compelled, like Saul, to do something, to do anything, or to do everything, because it all depends on us. But it doesn't. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. They belong to him. Third, we must anchor ourselves in the hope of a life to come, of a world to come, of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This world is not our forever home as it is presently constituted. This nation as much as we may enjoy it and appreciate it and be thankful for it, this nation is not our forever home. Our hope must be lodged in a different place in the world that, which is to come. More fourth, we must believe in the just judgment of God. Because when you believe that, then you can do what we have seen David do in the last several sermons, then you can leave it to the Lord. You can leave it to God to avenge. You can leave it to the wrath of God, as it says in Romans chapter 12. You can leave things in the court of Almighty God. If you don't believe that, then you have to take care of it now. You always have to take care of it now. And fifth and finally, we must remember a rich theology of suffering that believes sometimes it is better to suffer than be declared right. Paul says, why not suffer wrong? He says that with respect to suits. Why not just suffer the wrong? But it applies to Saul as well. What did Saul need to do in this circumstance? He needed to suffer the silence. He needed to suffer the silence. It was the cost of his sin. He needed to pray, pray again, ask others to pray, and then suffer the silence and go out into the battle 
that confronted the people of God. But he didn't. It's, it's sometimes better to suffer. It's always better to suffer when the other option is direct disobedience to the revealed will of God. Saul was habituated to not listening. He was habituated to taking matters into his own hands. Peter wrote to aliens and exiles who were scattered in this world, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. 1 Peter 4, 7. Now, Peter didn't mean when he wrote that that the world was going to necessarily end tomorrow. He means we're in the last days right now. Well, Saul thought the end of all things is at hand, that day. Some Christians today seem to think that the end of all things is at hand, that these are desperate times. Well, if they are, if they are desperate times, if the end of all things actually is at hand, then listen to the counsel from the Word of God to those who are exiled, to those who have suffered the loss of their possessions, to those who have been divided in two, who have been burned at the stake, to those who have been torn apart by wild beasts. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. In times of desperation, sing this song. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Lord, we pray that you would help us. We each, in our own lives, and our own families, uh, in our church, in our communities, even in a nation, we each face times that seem to us critical moments for whatever reason. It might be a word from a doctor, a test that we're facing, a, a loss that we've just experienced. We pray that in such times, you would help us to remember these things, that you would help us to remember your word, your prophet. We pray that you would protect us from taking matters into our own hands, from acting presumptuously in a way that is contrary to your word. Help us to follow strong after you and to trust well in you. We pray that you would then help us to act faithfully. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.